And if you have your Bible this morning, turn with me to Genesis chapter 6. And Caleb, our college minister, missions minister, prayed a moment ago. Uh, we should mention uh, that he is a new father. As of just a few days ago, Griffin Cole, uh, born on Tuesday. New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve, something, New Year's Eve. He's a new father. I should get points for getting the name right. I'm not real good with names. Hey, I have a, I have a couple of announcements just to share with you before we jump into scripture this morning. Uh, the Lord has been especially good to us in the month of December. And as we prepare for 2019, I had shared with you at the beginning of December uh, that we were looking at a budget deficit for the year of about $80,000. And we were trusting that the Lord would provide uh, through his generosity and your faithfulness and sacrifice. And that is exactly what happened. And I am told that we ended the month not with an $80,000 budget deficit for the year, but we ended with a $117,000 budget surplus. And so thank you just for your faithfulness, absolutely. And then on top of that, uh, we have uh, in, in December every year a special offering uh, that we engage in, that we give to, called the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. This is for foreign international missions to share the gospel around the world. And this year, uh, last year, I should say, our goal was $50,000 uh, to that special offering. And I know some more money will come in in the next week or two. Uh, But so far, uh, you have met and exceeded that goal by giving $53,000 in the month of December. And so we're thankful for that. And then it gets better as it goes. If you remember back in April, uh, we uh, asked you to make a commitment to help us renovate our church facilities. Uh, There are many places uh, here on our campus that just need some improving. And so we asked, we set some goals and we asked you to make some commitments. Well, we set goals here and then you exceeded those goals with your commitment and you committed way more than what uh, we had set our goals to be. Uh, We still have about three or three and a half months left in that pledge. We had pledged all of us together as a church to give over a 12 month period. And so we're just about three quarters of the way through that. Uh, But I can tell you, the pledge was $1.57 million. How much has been given so far? How close are we uh, to meeting that pledge goal? Well, as of December 31st, the total given is $1,681,206. We are 7% over what you pledged, and we have three months left to give. Isn't that amazing? And so we praise the Lord for that. Listen, that's so unheard of, unexpected. We know that the Lord's just doing something special. Uh, We do not want you to stop giving. And so you may still have pledged to give. I still have pledged to give. Uh, let's, uh, Let's continue to give. God knows what we need. And I think when all of this comes together, that what God... Uh, gives through us and through our obedience and faithfulness will match the need perfectly. Uh, But it is so exciting to see how God is working and how God is blessing our church. Well, uh, before we get into scripture, I think we just ought to pray. Can we do that and thank the Lord for these special gifts? 
Father, you have been good to uh, this faith family for years, for decades and generations. And we're thankful for that, that you have done in the past. But Father, it is so encouraging to see your hand still upon our church. Father, we have people here who are so faithful, who are so obedient, who are so sacrificial. And I pray that 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 spirit will continue. And Father, that we will see uh, great things happen in the days to come. Great glory and honor to you and to your kingdom. People swept into your kingdom as they come to know you as their Savior and Lord because of the blessings that you have given us, especially in these last few weeks. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder how many of you know the story of Noah and the ark, uh, the, the, the worldwide flood. I, I suppose that's one of those stories that is so well known, everybody uh, knows that story. And we have known it from our earliest years. In fact, many of you, and, and Don and I are in this group, you decorated your kids' nursery with a Noah's Ark theme. That is the very first Bible story, really, that we taught to our oldest daughter uh, because just two days after she was born, she was immersed into the Noah's Ark story as we brought her home. But if you think about it, that is a really odd thing to do. This is the most violent, uh, the most difficult to read story in all of the Bible. This is God's greatest judgment upon man and God's greatest judgment upon the earth that has happened so far. Millions of people perished. The story in every way, in any way you slice it, in any way you describe it, would have been a horrific thing. It would have been an offense uh, to your eyes just to be able to see what that must have looked like. In fact, we have some pictures we can show you of uh, some good children's nursery ideas. You see that? Isn't that a neat idea? And there you can put it on, on the wall of uh, your child's room. Do we have another one? There's one more. That's full immersion there. And so I looked up some pictures, though, because those pictures are not accurate at all. And so I Googled, I warn you against this, I Googled realistic Noah's Ark paintings. And they are so awful, I couldn't even show them to you. It, it would have been upsetting here in the worship service. And certainly you would not paint those pictures on the walls of your children's room. And so this would have been an event that would have been offensive in every way. To the eyes, to be able to see the destruction, millions of people dying. To the ears, to hear the cries of desperation and the cries of death. And even to the nose, because millions of people died and their bodies decayed. So what is this story really about? Why is this in the Bible? Why did God permit this to happen? What does this say about the sinfulness of the people in that day? And most importantly, what does this say about the character of God? Who would, who would dream up something so terrible and who would cause something so terrible to happen to so many people? Those are some questions that I want us to answer this morning. We've been doing our 100 days through the Bible. Hopefully you have read the first five days and this uh, is that we're going to focus on this morning is one of the things that you would have read uh, in the next week, by the way, as we go through the next five days, we'll be looking at the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is going to be a really exciting chapter. We've seen 
tons of people get engaged in this. Uh, tons of people are sharing their thoughts uh, on Facebook. I've heard stories, even away from the church, people have come up to me and said, you don't know who I am, but let me tell you the story of my uh, start in reading the Bible through in a hundred days. I hope you're a part of this. And so this morning is our first message that we're preaching from the passages you read the previous week. So when it comes to Noah's Ark, when it comes to the story of the worldwide flood, there are really two things you need to know before we get into the scripture verses themselves. First of all, this is a historical event. Sometimes we think of Noah's Ark and the flood and other stories in the Old Testament as just uh, fables. It's just stories we tell to make a point that don't have any uh, truth to them, but that is not the case. When it comes to the story of the worldwide flood, this is something that actually happened in history. And it's interesting to study some of the scientific and archaeological evidence of the flood. Don't let anybody ever tell you that there's no evidence that a worldwide flood took place. There is great evidence of this. Uh, I know one time I, I spent a couple of days at Answers in Genesis Museum. Uh, which is just um, uh, just outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. It's in Kentucky, but just south of Cincinnati. And they've got some information. They have collected some archaeological uh, uh, facts and artifacts, and, and they have uh, scientific information that when you go through that, it is amazing how much support there is for the flood. And then now they've built this Ark Encounter. It's further on down into Kentucky, uh, and I don't know if you've been there, but it's worth a trip. It's a little ways away from Nacogdoches, but it's worth a trip to go and just see even more information about the flood. There's all kinds of evidence that the flood was a real historical event, but not just scientific and archeological evidence. There's even literary evidence that the flood was real. And this is something I find interesting because it's something that happened uh, early in my education. Uh, when I began going to Bible college, uh, I had a very liberal Old Testament professor, and I didn't even know what liberal meant back then, uh, but we were asked to read something called the Gilgamesh Epic, which every, uh, every pastor, every Bible student reads. There's nothing wrong with reading that, uh, but it is an ancient 13th century uh, Babylonian document uh, that describes a global flood. And so we read this, and we read this account of a flood. It's a very fanciful account of a flood. And then we were told that that was proof. I can still remember this in class. We were told that that was proof that what we read in the Old Testament was copied from this Babylonian tradition, and that we can have no confidence in what we read in the Old Testament. Well, there were a couple of problems with that that I didn't understand at the time. Uh, one obvious problem is just the dating. So the Babylonian uh, account, the Gilgamesh epic, uh, dates back to the 13th century BC. Our Bible record dates back before that. And so you can't copy something before it was written. Does that make sense? And, and, then, and then the other problem is, there, uh, when you read the Gilgamesh epic, it is a very fanciful story. It reads like a modern day movie of what happened. And when, when things are copied, they usually don't go from fanciful to simple. They go from simple to fanciful. And what we find in the Bible is just a very simple, straightforward story of the flood. And so then after that, I read uh, the Sumerian Deluge, uh, which is a 17th century story 
from the Samaritan tradition of how they see in their ancient history uh, the story of the flood. There was a worldwide flood. So the Babylonians believed that their civilization started after a flood. The Sumerians believed uh, in the 17th century document that their civilization started after the flood. And then an even older document, the Atrasis epic, goes back to the 18th century BC, and those people see their civilization as starting with a flood. Now there are a couple of different ways to look at that. And so uh, my professor suggested that that meant that what we find in the Bible was simply copied from all of these other traditions. But what is another explanation? The other explanation is there was a flood, right? And if there was a flood, doesn't it make sense that all of these ancient civilizations would look back to a flood as the beginning of their existence? And so that is, that is the case. And there is not only scientific evidence of a worldwide flood, there's not only archaeological evidence of a worldwide flood, but even literary evidence. When we read the story, we read a historical uh, account. And now the second thing I want us to see, and maybe even more important, is this is a picture of the character of God. When we read what happened with Noah and the flood, we see clearly into God's heart something of his character. Now sometimes you'll hear people say, I believe in the God of the New Testament, but I do not believe in the God of the Old Testament. Now what do people mean when they say that? They, say, they mean that the God of the Old Testament is this um, judgmental, violent uh, God who does not care and who does not love people, and they reject that God, but they find in the New Testament that there is a God of love and of peace and of acceptance, and they love the God of the New Testament and reject the God of the Old Testament. And this story, this account in Genesis chapter 6 is one of the things that they point to to support their statement I do not believe in the God of the Old Testament, but I do believe in the God of the New Testament. Now, there's, th there's a problem with that. It's the same God. And when we fully understand how God is depicted and characterized in the Old Testament, and we fully understand how God is depicted and characterized in the New Testament, we will see that the same God with the same description and the same character, there's one God and all that we read in the Old Testament and the New Testament, all that that tells us about the character of God is true. But there's great confusion about the character of God. Uh, and, and this is important. People, large numbers of people, just have these misconceptions about who God really is. But this story, I think, clears up much of that. Let me give you some of the misconceptions that people have of God. Uh, first of all, some people think of God as the grandfather God. Do you know what I mean when I say the grandfather God? They believe that God just unconditionally loves everyone. They believe that God would not ultimately punish or condemn anyone. In the end, love wins. Have you heard that? In the end, love wins. God's going to take care of everybody. He is the grandfather God. Uh, you've probably heard this statement. God hates the sin, but what? Loves the sinner. Oh, it embarrasses me you all know that. And so, so we hear that statement and we think, well, that describes God. He hates sin, but he loves all of the people. Do you know where that, that comes from? God hates the sin, but loves the sinner. It does not come from the Bible. It does not come from the Bible at all. It is a quote of Gandhi. 
who wrote it in his personal autobiography in 1929. It is a direct quote from that. It is not in the Bible. What does the Bible say? Well, Psalm 5, 5 and 6 says, the boastful cannot stand in his sight. God hates all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. But but we have in our minds that oftentimes God is just a grandfather God and he in the end is just going to love everybody. Just love everybody. That is a misconception of God. Another misconception is that he is the prison warden God. That God delights in judgment of all people who don't live up to his impossible standard. That God is out to get us. No one can measure up. No one has hope. All people will be doomed. Some people just think God is absolutely out to get us. He is the prison warden God. Some people have a misconception that God is the reasonable God. And what they believe is that God is fair-minded and reasonable and he's willing to reward our good effort. That God just wants me to try my best and then he'll be reasonable about it. You hear that even preached at a lot of so-called churches. That God just wants you to do your best and then he'll take care of everything. He is reasonable. Just do your best. Friends, that's a misconception of God. Some people think of God as the karma God. Karma. You know what karma is? The karma God, that God is a careful record keeper who rewards the sum of your good works. Uh, that you just, if you do good things, you'll be rewarded. If you do bad things, you'll be punished. And as long as you do more good things than bad things, it'll work out in the end because God's going to add it all up. And as long as you're on the positive side of the ledger, you're fine. That God is the karma God, the record-keeping God. That is a misconception of God. Some people think of God as the benefit of the doubt God. That God will judge us based on our good intentions. That God judges what's in my heart. That God knows deep down I'm a good person. That deep down I'm kind and I care for people and that I'm, I'm a loving person. And even though it might not show in my behavior or the things that I say, God's going to give me the benefit of the doubt and judge me on my good intentions. The benefit of the doubt, God. That is a misconception. And then some people think of God as the Star Wars God. Uh, you've seen the movie Star Wars. And you know that the Star Wars God is simply a force uh, that can be manipulated for happiness and success. Uh, God is what I use in order to have a happy marriage and a successful career. And then if you, if you just say the right words and do the right things, you can manipulate God into doing all kinds of things for you to make you happier and more successful. The karma God or the Star Wars God. That, my friend, is a, is a misconception. So what is God's character? Well, let's, let's look into scripture and see uh, what, we, what we can learn. Genesis chapter 6 and I want to read this, this whole story. I, I've tried to find a way to break it up and make it a little shorter. Uh, but, but I want to read the whole thing. Uh, every verse is important this morning. So Genesis chapter 6 verse 5 says, When the Lord saw that human wickedness was widespread on the earth and that every inclination of the human mind was nothing but evil all the time, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and he was deeply grieved and then the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I created 
off the face of the earth together with the animals, creatures that crawl, and birds of the sky. For I regret that I made them. Noah, however, found favor with the Lord. And so people are sitting. God's had enough. Judgment is coming. But one man finds favor with the Lord. His name is Noah. Now, something you should know about that last phrase, that last statement, before we continue to read, when it says that Noah found favor with the Lord, it doesn't mean that Noah earned the favor of the Lord. Uh, All the way through the Bible, New and Old Testaments, you see this phrase, found favor with God, and in every case, it means that God has chosen to bestow his favor on somebody, not that they have earned it. Uh, I think the best example of that is with Mary, the mother of Jesus, in Luke chapter one, verse 30, the angel, when he was announcing to Mary that she was going to give birth to the Christ child, the angel said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Not Mary, you have earned this privilege, but Mary, God has chosen you. And so here, God has chosen to show his goodness to Noah, Noah was a righteous man, we'll see in the next verse. He was a blameless man, we'll, we'll note that. But God has chosen to give Noah his, his favor. Verse nine, these are the family records of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among his contemporaries. Noah walked with God and Noah fathered three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Verse 11, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with wickedness. God saw how corrupt the earth was for every creature had corrupted it, uh, it, it corrupted its way on the earth. And then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature uh, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I am going to destroy them along with the earth. So verse 14, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet high. Uh, You are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door in the side of the ark, make it with a lower, middle, and upper deck. Verse 17, understand that I am bringing a flood, flood waters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. He says, everything will die, but I will save. Noah, I will rescue you and your sons and your sons' wives. Uh, What does this tell us uh, about the character of God? Uh, what, what, What does this show us about about God who would choose to snuff out the lives of millions of people. Why would God do that? Well, the short answer to the question is that God would do that because God is a just God. The reason why, the one answer, the simple, brief answer to the question, why would God do something that's described in these verses? The brief answer is because God is just. In fact, that's the most important thing you need to know about God. He is a just God. In fact, the Bible says in Psalm 89, 14, the righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Now, righteousness and justice here are synonyms. It's talking about his justice, that he upholds his justice. And he says that's the foundation of who God is 
Let's learn something about the justice of God. And I think this will challenge you, but when we see a full picture of it, it will encourage you. So four things that we learn about the justice of God in this, in this passage. Number one, God is just and he hates sin. God is just and he hates sin. Look at verse 13 again. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. And so God hates sin. He is going to destroy the earth. He's going to destroy all these people because he hates sin. Why would God do that? Why would God, why would the God of the Old Testament kill all of these people uh, who, who, are, who are guilty of sin? Would the God of the New Testament do the same thing? Well, in fact, you find the same thing in the New Testament. Uh, the clearest way you find it is in Romans 6.23. Do you know that verse? For the wages of sin is death. What he says in Romans 6.23 is the wages, what you deserve if you've ever sinned is death. God is just and he hates sin and the consequences of sin, whether it's in Genesis chapter 6 or it's in Romans chapter 6, the consequences of sin is death. Now, we hear that and the Bible says that very clearly from beginning to end. But let's just, let's be honest with that for a few minutes. Let's deal with that. Why do my sins deserve death? Because if you're like me, just in an honest moment, you'd have to say, I don't, God, I just don't see it. You say my sins deserve death and eternal death, but I don't, I don't think I'm that guilty. I've, I've done things that are wrong, but I've never done anything that bad. How in the world could my sins deserve death? Well, there's a simple answer to the question, and then there's a complex answer. And I want you to hear both. The simple answer for why your sins deserve death is because God said so. Now, and we need to understand that, that that's really, in one sense, as far as we need to go. God is the judge, right? He is the ruler, the creator, the sovereign. If God said it, that settles it. God says, my sins deserve death. And whether I ever understand that or not, whether I agree with that or not, is of little relevance, right? God says, sins deserve death. But, but let's, let's dig a little further because there is, there's further information that we can understand. Why do my sins deserve death? Because God is holy. Because God is perfect. Because God has no shadow of sin. Because God has, has never uh, compromised because God has never come close to compromising because God is righteous and perfect and clean because God is holy. My sins, which, which could never be true of God, my guilt separates me from God. And because of that, I deserve death. That's difficult to understand because we can't really comprehend the holiness of God. Isaiah, a prophet, a man who was known for his impeccable life and, and a man who was, um, who was a blameless man. He was, he was guilty of sin, but he was a very good man. When Isaiah came into the presence of God's holiness, listen to what he said. Woe is me. I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips because I have seen the king. 
His holiness, God's holiness is so great, it is so pure, it is so righteous that we can't even approach. And so, now listen, this is complicated, because God is so holy and I am guilty of sin, even the smallest sin, by the way we count sin, because I am guilty of sin, the holiness of God separates me from him. Because God is holy and I am covered in sin, I cannot approach God. I cannot be in the presence of God because God is too holy and too pure and too righteous. We looked at Psalm 5, a couple of verses there a moment ago, but let me read this whole section to you. It says, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil cannot dwell with you because God is so holy, evil, sin, wickedness cannot even approach God. The boastful, it says, can't stand in your sight. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who tell lies. The Lord abhors violent and treacherous people. Because God is so holy, I am separated from God. Now life, life comes from God, right? And so if I am separated from God, then I am separated from the life that God provides. And so I will exist in eternal death. When the Bible talks about sin and hell and eternal death, it's talking about how I can't have life if I am not connected to God. I can't have life and I cannot be connected to God because of my sin. And so God says the wages of sin is death. So God says to the, to the wicked people of Genesis chapter six, you will die if you do not turn from me because God is just and he hates sin. I know it's hard for us to, to comprehend the awfulness of our sin. But, but let, me, let me take you through a little activity that I think will help you. Now, you may not feel like, just like I don't feel, that my sin deserves death. It doesn't seem that bad. But you would agree, wouldn't you, that some sins deserve death, right? Can you think of some sins that you think do deserve death? I mean, we think about capital crime. We think about murder. We think about some kinds of sexual assault. We think about genocide. We, we think about Adolf Hitler and Mussolini and Ted Bundy. And we can think, all of us can think of some sins that, that we think deserve death. Now, why do you think those sins deserve death, but your sins do not? Because those sins are worse than your sins. You concluded that those terrible sins deserve death because you compared them to your own sins, right? God uses the same calculus. And he comes to the same conclusion. He compares your sins to his holiness. And just as Ted Bundy's sins compared to mine make me say he deserves death, just like if, if I compare Adolf Hitler's sins to mine, I think, well, he deserves death. When God, who is so holy, I can't imagine it, compares my sin to his holiness, the same calculus, the same way of understanding, he sees the truth. My sins, your sins deserve death. God is just and he hates sin. Now, let's just talk about the justice of God there before we get to the next point. So, why can't God just overlook our sin? Why can't God just say, now, Noel, you're guilty of sin and, and you shouldn't have been. 
but I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna let you go. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a break. I'm gonna cut you some slack. I'm gonna let you go. Why can't God do that? Because God is just, church. If we had a judge, and we have judges in our church this morning, if we had a judge here in town, and we heard that he was just or she was just uh, willy-nilly letting criminals go, we'd be upset about that, right? I mean, if we heard that somebody had been convicted of murder, and the judge said, listen, obviously you're guilty of murder, but I sort of like you, and I'm having a good day. My wife cooked me breakfast this morning, and it's a Friday. Don't worry about it. You're free to go. Now, we'd be pretty upset about that, right? We would say that that is a bad judge because a judge is responsible for upholding the law. Well, God is a good judge, a righteous judge. He is committed to justice. And so God can't just relent from from punishing sin. No, that's the standard. And God will uphold the standard. Now, you might say, well, but God tells me I have to forgive. When I read the New Testament, the Bible says that I need to forgive other people. When people sin against me, I just need to forgive them. Why can't God do what God tells me to do? Well, good question. And here's a good answer. God does not ask you to forgive without basis. If somebody sins against you, you're to forgive them. But you're to forgive them based on what? That God has forgiven you. I need to forgive people that forgive a, for, who sin against me because I am just extending the forgiveness of God. God's already forgiven me. You hurt me, I need to forgive you. I need just to extend the forgiveness I have received from God to you. But God has received no forgiveness because God has needed no forgiveness. And when God comes face to face with our sin, God can either uphold the standard or God can lower the standard. And our God is a God of justice. He will always uphold the standard. No sin will go unpunished by death. Now, that's the first thing you should know about the character of God. We're going to go very fast. Number two, the second thing, God is just yet long-suffering. If you go back and read verse 5, you see uh, that God saw, that God watched this uh, sin uh, that has become rampant in the world at this time, God watched it develop. And God was patient with that. God could have just struck them down at the very first sin, but no, God was patient with them and he watched the sin develop. Second Peter 2, 5 says that Noah was a preacher. That meant that they had heard the warnings that you must not sin and you must turn to God, but they refused to do that. First Peter 3.20 says that God waited patiently while Noah built the ark. Think about this. So God decides he's going to judge the world. And then he begins the process by telling Noah to build a great big ship. Now, that's going to take a long time, right? Wouldn't there have been a better way if God just wanted to judge the earth? He could have built the ship for Noah. He could have said, listen, here's the ship, bang. I mean, God created the world with a word. God could build a ship in a hurry. Why did God pick such a slow plan for bringing judgment upon the world? Because God patiently waited for people to repent. We see this in the Old Testament. We see this in the New Testament. Jesus tells a parable of a, of, of a fig tree that three years doesn't bear fruit. And so the, so the farmer said, let's cut it down. 
And, and the worker said, no, let's give it one more year. And it says that's a picture of the heart of God. God is just, yet he is long-suffering. He, he, he does not want anyone to perish, but he's patient with us. So he's just and he's long-suffering. Number three, God is just, yet he loves the unworthy. And we see here, verse 6, we see that the Lord regretted that he had made the earth and he was deeply grieved. Now, you don't grieve over someone unless what? Unless you love them. You're not grieved over someone's situation unless you love them. If, when I turn the news on and I see that somebody has, um, somebody I don't know has been in a car accident and died or somebody has been a victim of a violent crime, I don't grieve over that. I'm sorry that it happened. I, I feel bad for them and their families, but I don't grieve over that. Do you, you understand the difference? But somebody in my family goes through some hardship, somebody I love goes through something terrible, that's a whole different thing, right? You hurt, it's almost as if you experience the pain that they're experiencing. That's, that's what it means to grieve. You only grieve over people you love. Now God is just. But God loves us. He grieved over these people. These people that were snuffed out in the flood, God grieved over these people. Ezekiel 33, 11 says that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Uh, in Luke 13, 34, we see that Jesus grieved over the nation of Israel and over the city of Jerusalem because they were lost. And in Romans 5, 8, it says God proves his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God, God is just, but he loves the unworthy. And he, and he wants us to turn. He wants us to turn. Well, number four, very quickly, that we learn about the justice of God, the character of God. God satisfies his justice for those who trust him. So God instructed Noah to build an ark. And Noah built the ark. How did the people who were saved in the ark, how did they receive the benefits of the ark? Do you know? There was Noah and his wife and his sons and his son's wives. They, they didn't die in the flood. How did they receive the benefits of the ark? Well, the Bible tells us, we can, we can figure it out really from the story in Genesis 6, but we see more in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, where it says, by faith, Noah, after he was warned, uh, about what was uh, not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, he built an ark for his family. Listen, in, in short, Noah received the benefit of the ark because he trusted God. See, the ark is a picture. It tells us something of the character of God, but it is a picture of Jesus Christ. So the Bible says today that the wages of sin is death. God still, God still punishes and with death, every sin, but there's an ark and the ark is Jesus Christ. And if we were, if we are in Christ, if we have trusted Christ, just as Noah and his family trusted what God said about the ark, then, then we are insulated. The ark insulated those people from the judgment, from the water, which was the judgment of God. When we trust what Christ has done for us, it insulates us from the, from the judgment of God, which is death. So here's an amazing truth. 
Because God is just, he demands that sin be paid for. But because God is love, he pays for the sin himself. And that, that's the most amazing truth. Because God is just, he demands that sin be paid for. He is just, sin must be paid for. But because he loves us, he pays for the sin himself by sending Jesus to die and to become our payment for the guilt of our sin. I love what the Bible says in Hebrews 7.25. Listen to this and we'll close. Therefore he, it speaks of Jesus, therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede for them. So what that verse says is that God is able to save us completely, save us from our sins, the guilt of our sins, the death that, we're, that we deserve. God is able to save us completely if we will come to him, if we'll trust in, in, in Jesus, because Jesus intercedes for us. Now, intercede means to talk. Jesus talks to the Father for us. Have you ever wondered, what does Jesus say to the Father? You know, I, I think I've always thought of that as, in, in my mind, I, I've always thought that Jesus was pleading for mercy for me. That Jesus was up in heaven, and he was... And, and he, he and the father were looking down at Noel Deer. And, and the father was saying, oh, not again, not again, not again. I mean, over and over, look at him, look at him. He's rebelling, look at him. We give him second chances. He blows it over and over, not again. And then Jesus is right next to the father. This is how I've always imagined it. And Jesus is saying, oh, please, let's let him, let's let him by. Let's give him a break. I mean, look at him. He's not very smart. I mean, maybe it's just stupidity. I mean, we gotta, we, let's cut him some slack. I know he keeps doing it over and over. Oh, but God, you're so merciful. Well, show him mercy, Father. Show him mercy. And, and I've imagined that, that Jesus interceding for me is this, this, this long begging for mercy. But that's not what the Bible teaches happens. No, Jesus is not demanding mercy. Jesus is demanding justice. And Jesus and the Father look down and they see my sin. And Jesus, I believe, says, Father, your law demands justice. And you said the wages of sin is death. Look at him. Payment is demanded. Death is owed. But Father, here I am to pay for the death that Noel owes. The death has been paid. The debt can't be paid twice. I have paid the debt for Noel. Be the God of justice. And justice demands that when the debt is paid, that the person is freed. And acquit Noel for his sins, not because you're the God of mercy, but because you're the God of justice and because of love. I have paid for all his sins. You see, we, we see the justice of God in this terrible story of Noah and the, and, the, and the great flood. But we see in this the explanation for why some people died and why some people lived. And we see in this the explanation why today some people will spend eternity in death. And some people will spend eternity with life.
because God is just, but because God is so loving, he satisfies his own justice in Jesus. Let me ask you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. So the question is, how are we gonna respond? If you know Christ as your savior, I'll tell you how this ought to make you respond. You should just rejoice. God is just, but Jesus has paid the penalty. I rejoice in that. If you don't know Christ as your savior, listen, the flood ought to scare you to death. God is not the God that at the end is just going to let everybody off. No, he is a just God. But he is a loving God, and you can respond to his love today by saying, God, I trust the provision you've made for me in Jesus as he died on the cross, and I surrender my life to you. Father, help us to know today that you are a just God, and that is good news. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.